Well, today we will continue our series on the New Testament book of First Corinthians. And since we had a two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter, we'll get back to examining the highlights. And today it's the highlights of chapter 10, which was part of our morning scripture. Now, this chapter is rather long, 33 verses. However, my Bible breaks those verses up into three sections, three main ideas, which I like to focus on this morning. The first 13 chap, the first 13 verses, excuse me, are talking about the warnings from Israel's history. Then verses 14 to 22 talk about flee from idolatry. And then the last verses, verse 23 to 33, is what I call the believer's freedom. Now, this chapter does touch on a theme of togetherness and challenges our concerns for others that the Apostle Paul discusses throughout the first book of Corinthians. So one of the challenges we as Christians face is the issue of spiritual maturity in dealing with new Christians. I will attempt to explain this topic in the message that I'm titling today, Spiritual Immaturity, Overconfidence and Lack of Self-Discipline. So let's get started. The first section was Warnings from Israel's History, verses 1 to 13. Now this could probably also be titled, A History of Holiness. Paul starts out this chapter giving us an overview of history to the Corinthians. Now, some of us don't like history. Some of us never liked history when we had to study it in school. And I'm sure the Corinthians, some of them, didn't want to hear about history either. But history is relevant. The famous Harvard professor, George Santania, stated these words, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. In the first five verses of chapter 10, Paul provides an overview of the Old Testament history of the Israelites, particularly with their failures with regard to obeying the will and the word of God. Paul concludes this little synopsis in verse 6 where he says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And we all know what an example is. But Paul continues on in verses 7 to 10 and outlines examples of what the Israelites did in their past. Things he wanted the Corinthians not to repeat and things he wants us not to repeat or avoid. Verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and get up and indulge in pagan revelry. Now this incident occurred to, to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 32. Remember, Moses went up to get the, the Ten Commandments and the verse 32 starts out, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. So they told Aaron to make him a golden calf. And they began to indulge in pagan revelry. Wasn't a smart thing to do. 
Verse 8 says, we should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. This incident occurred in the book of Numbers, chapter 25, 1 through 9, when the Israelites worshipped Baal of Peor and engaged in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. And it cost 23,000 of their lives. It says you might want to avoid that. You might not want to do that. Verse 9 says, we should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. This references to when the Israelites complained, again, to Moses about their food. They had a bad habit. They complained and grumbled. Verse 10 talks about that, about a lot of different things. And suddenly they were being bitten by snakes, and now they're asking Moses, what can we do to prevent this? And in verse 10, it says, one of my favorites, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Paul refers to people complaining again against Moses and Aaron, and the plagues that resulted, it's told us in Numbers chapter 14, Numbers chapter 16, and this destroying angel is again referenced in Exodus 12:23. Remember what happened when people didn't paint the blood on their door frames, the destroying angel came and took care of the firstborn, mostly of the Egyptians at that time. But people were constantly grumbling. So, so what can we learn from these examples? Paul cautions the Corinthians as well as us to remember the lessons of the Israelites, basically so we can avoid repeating them. But he goes on a little bit farther. He tells us in verse 12 these words, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Paul is saying one of the surest ways to fall into sin and into temptation is by being overconfident or self-confident, however you want to say it. But I like the way he says that. He says, stand firm. He wants you to hold your ground. And then he goes on in that famous verse, verse 13, where he says, because he says, we're all going to be tempted, but he goes on in verse 13 and says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What's Paul really saying? He's saying wrong desires and temptations happen to everyone, so don't feel that you're being singled out. Everyone gets tempted. He's also saying, others have resisted temptation, so can you, and so can I. And he also says, any temptation can be resisted because God will help you resist it. And you might say, well, how does that happen? God helps you resist temptation in many ways. He helps you to recognize those people 
are situations that give you trouble. You all know what I'm talking about. You all know the certain people that maybe you shouldn't be hanging around with. You all know certain situations. I should probably go there. We all know this. God is placing that in your heart. He also tells us to run from anything that you know is wrong. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. That takes effort to run. He says, choose only to do what is right. You have choices. You can choose. He also says to pray to God for help and to seek friends who love God and can offer you help when you are tempted. Seek someone you can be accountable with or accountable to, maybe besides your spouse, a good friend that you can talk to to help you. And then Paul goes on in verses 14 to 22, and the main theme here is flee from idolatry. Now, idol worship was a major expression of religion in Corneth. There were several pagan temples in the city, and they were all very popular. Now, these statues of wood or stone were not evil in themselves, but people gave them credit for what only God could do, such as provide good weather, provide crops, provide children. These gods and statues were worshipped in various different ways. Now, idolatry is still a serious problem today. But it takes a different form. We now put our faith in, some people put their faith in their wallet. Or maybe in the plastic in their wallet. Or maybe this device called a cell phone. It's interesting to me that this is called a phone. When I read some information on the, on the internet, it said that talking on the phone is the seventh most important thing that this is used for, which, which kind of puzzles me. I actually asked some of our young, young uh, teenagers here in church. I said, they, hey, do you have one of these? Of course, they look at me like I'm crazy. Of course, we all have one of these. I said, how would you rank from one to 10, one being the most important, 10 being the least important, how would you rank talking on one of these devices? And they said, oh, maybe six or seven. That's the most important. I, I, it's, it's called a phone, but I use it for, uh, you know, they're going through all the stuff. But we can make these things idols. Is this more important? Spend, I bet I can talk, I bet I can take a little survey and people spend more time on this than they do talking with God each day probably would be a slam dunk. Our modern idols and symbols, what I call the three P's that people have problems with. Power, pleasure, and prestige. We like to make these our idols as we're going about our lives. So this is why Paul so emphatically told the Corinthians in verse 14 and 15, he says these words, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. 
And then he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. So what is fleeing? Well, you might say, well, Gary, that's, uh, that, you know, they're, they're running or whatever. I say, oh, okay. I never hear people say, I think I'll go for a flea today. You know, fleeing is major effort. You would flee, for what my son-in-law Chris would say, a fire you might flee. You might flee from a criminal that's chasing you. Fleeing is more emphatic than running. And so when he uses the word here, flee, you need to put major, major effort in avoiding idolatry. It's not just running. It's fleeing because it's bad. So what exactly is idolatry as Paul is discussing here in Scripture? Well, I'll summarize what I consider six things. Idolatry is slandering God's character. Idolatry is worshiping the true God in the wrong way. It's worshiping other things than God, such as images or angels or the devil or even dead people. Idolatry is any idol in the heart that you set up as God and bow down to. I mentioned a couple. Money, fame, prestige, power. Idolatry is covetedness. It's the God of materialism. We need everything. And idolatry is lust, the God of desires. But then Paul switches, he switches gears slightly and goes on to explain that idea of unity and fellowship with God through, through eating a sacrifice. This eating fellowship was strong in Judaism and, and in Christianity as well as in paganism. And in the Old Testament days, when a Jew offered a sacrifice, he ate part of the sacrifice as a way of restoring his unity with God against whom he had sinned. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Now, as followers of Christ, we must give him total allegiance. We cannot, as Paul explains, have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Eating at the Lord's table means communing with Christ and identifying with his death. Eating at the demon's table means identifying with Satan or by worshiping or promoting pagan or evil activities. And he goes on to say, you can't have it, you can't have it both at the same time. You can't try to live a life where you're coming to church, being a good church person, and then Monday through Friday or Saturday, doing your own thing. It's bowing down to other things other than God. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for us to do. But that is why we are told to flee. To flee. Major effort, major exertion from idolatry. Now the last section of this chapter is what I call the believer's freedom. And sometimes it's hard to know when to defer to a weaker believer. Paul gives a simple rule of thumb in helping us make this decision that we should be sensitive and gracious. He says in verse 23 to 24, 
Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, everything is permissible but not everything is constructive. And then he says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. What's he saying? He's saying, while some actions may not be wrong, they may not be in the best interest of others. And while we have liberty and freedom in Christ, we shouldn't exercise our freedom at the cost of hurting a Christian sister or brother. We are not only to consider ourselves, but we must be sensitive to others. Christian freedom doesn't mean that anything goes. It is tied to Christian responsibility. New believers are often very sensitive to what is right or wrong and what they should or shouldn't do. Some actions may be perfectly all right for us to do, but they may, they may harm a Christian brother or sister who is still young in the faith and trying to figure what their Christian life is all about. When we care and love others, our freedom should be less important to us than strengthening the faith of a sister or brother in Christ. So Paul kind of gives four principles in these last verses of, of chapter 10. In verse 23, he's talking about edification over gratification. In verse 24, he's talking about others over self. In verse 25 to 27, he's talking about liberty over legalism. And in verse 28 through 30, condensation over condemnation. When we become too worried about our every action, we become legalist and we cannot enjoy life. Now, everything belongs to God. And he has given us all things to enjoy. If we know something is a problem, then we can deal with it. But we really shouldn't be going looking for problems. Now, why should we be limited by another man's conscience, as outlined in verses 28 to 33? Simply because we are to do all things for God's glory, even our eating and our drinking. Nothing we should do should cause another believer to stumble. We should do our... We should do what is best for others so that they might be saved. On the other hand, Christians should not make a career out of being the weaker person with oversensitive conscience. Christian leaders and teachers have the responsibility to teach freedom of liberty. We have in matters not expressly forbidden in Scripture. Now, God's love must so permeate our motives that we, are, we should do all for His glory. In verse 31 to 33 of today's scripture, it says these words, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So a good guiding principle for our own actions would be to answer the question, is my action glorifying God? Or how can I honor God through my actions? Christian liberty as well as freedom is to be conducted to honor God. This is no different for people in the Old Testament people in the New Testament, or even today. We have the responsibility to represent God properly to the rest 
of the world. So how would we grade out in this responsibility? What can we take away from chapter 10 that Paul is giving us as criteria for actions? Again, what he wrote was not what he necessarily liked best, but what was best for those around him. We have to be of the same mind and same actions. Of course, the opposite actions we can recognize very easily is being insensitive and doing what we want, no matter who, it, who is hurt by it. And we all probably have done that at some point in our, t- in our lives. Being oversensitive sometimes and doing nothing for fear that someone may be displeased. Our society now basically tells us to, well, you can't, you can't do that because someone might be offended. You can't express your faith here. You can't say that because that might, that might hurt someone's feelings. Or being a yes person by going along with everything, trying to gain approval from people rather than from God. You know, I, I ate lunch Friday with a, with a friend from high school I hadn't seen in a long time. And I, uh, I know, I went with two of my good friends who are both Christians, and I know that this guy is, I'll, I'll, I don't know, I guess I'll call him a borderline Christian. He was eating with us. And my one friend across from me was witnessing to him about the Bible and about, about uh, his faith. And then the other friend across, uh, sitting to my right, was talking as a kind of a relative of him, also a cousin, and he's, he leaned over to me and he says, I've been working on him for 15 years. I said, okay, okay, great. And, I'm, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of looking. All of a sudden he looks at me and he says, Gary, are you a Christian? And I said, well, I'm preaching on Sunday. <laughs> and he kind of, what? He kind of, I said, well, yeah, I am a Christian. Yeah, and my other friends knew that I was doing that. They were just dying laughing when I answered them. But he, I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I said, what can I help you with? And I was talking to him about, he was talking about his faith, and you know, and I said, well, you need to, you should, should I be reading the Bible? I said, yeah, you probably need to do that every day. But I said, you need to get a Bible that you can understand. You need to get a Bible that's got some footnotes and some applications and something that, you know, it is hard to read. So I said, so it's not just, you know, you need something that helps you along the way, and you need to have friends that will help you can talk to and stuff like that. But that's all of our responsibility as Christians. We all have that same responsibility to speak up, especially if people are inquiring of you. you know, a lot of times have that opportunity when someone says, oh, are you a Christian? Well, that's our big chance to speak up, right? That's our big chance. But in this age that we live, we live in this age of what? Me first. Look out for number one. So Paul's statement in this chapter of looking out for others versus yourself would have been a startling proclamation. But it's also a great standard for us to, us to shoot for. If we make the good of others one of our primary goals, we not only develop a, a serving attitude that pleases God, but true liberty and freedom to glorify and give God 
the glory due to him. It's a winning combination. And everybody likes to be on a winning team. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would, as Christians, would learn from examples of others, both good examples and and bad examples, so that we can avoid making similar mistakes. Help us, Lord, to understand the word flee and to flee from idolatry, anything that tries to take your place in our lives. It's a major effort, Lord, and help us to give us the strength to do that. And Father, help us to also be able to work with new believers and believers that are not strong in their faith so that they can grow as we look out for other people and for the needs of others before our own needs, which is not an easy thing, Lord, but we ask that you would give us the strength to do that. And we lift this all up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we join the worship team in our final song.